Good morning again, church. Um, I was the guy who was up here earlier. Um, and uh, it's a privilege to carry on preaching through the series of the Song of Songs. Um, last week, we looked at the second poem. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at poem number three. It starts in uh, Song of Songs, chapter three, verse six. And it's a fairly lengthy portion of text. Mark says 40 slides. Um, and we go up to 5 verse 1. Before we read it, it's just a reminder that um, this is a collection of poems, and it is about a newlywed couple who are learning to grow in mutual love in a covenant relationship. And we can have confidence this morning that it gives us a type of God's divine love for us. I want to go through some of those reasons because we're still having conversations with people and some people uh, are uh, really get, gaining a lot out of this book. Others are a, a bit more tentative. And so I just want to go through these reasons again. These are the reasons it was given in the introduction, the first uh, sermon. I encourage you to listen to that one. Uh, but I want to recap some of them so that as we look at uh, what God is saying to us this morning, you can have confidence that it is a picture of his love for us. The first reason is that the love poems in the ancient East were commonly used. You might be going, are we trying to do something that's uncommon here by saying that this is for spiritual instruction? And I would say to you, this was actually common practice amongst multiple uh, faiths in those uh, parts of the world, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the in, uh, southern Tamil-speaking Indians, they would collect poetry and use it for spiritual instruction, and Solomon is doing something similar here. The next reason is that the Jews themselves, when they spoke about this book, they referred to it, one of the phrases they used for it was, it is the holy of holies of revelation. Now that's fascinating that they would say that, because the holy of holies is God's presence, that you can only get into because of Jesus. Jesus is the veil torn on the cross, and now we can all enter into this uh, relationship with God and be in close proximity with Him. And they, the Jews, called the Song of Songs the Holy of Holies of Revelation. That sounds like Jesus has got a lot to do with that. God shows His relationship with Israel in the Old Testament often as one of marriage. So we see this man and this woman married, and uh, is it a type of God's love for us? Well, he will say that in the Old Testament, in Hosea especially as an example, that he is married to the uh, Jewish people. We see marriage used in the relationship between Christ and the church. Whenever I do marriage counseling, I never uh, push towards divorce. Do you know that uh, non-Christian marriage counselors, the easiest way to do marriage counseling is to say separate? It's the easiest thing to do because marriage counseling is so difficult and no one's good at it. So if you've got no reason for people to stay together and help them fight through, you just tell them to separate. My very first thing I say in every marriage counseling, even when the person says to me, I say to them, what goal do you have for the next eight weeks? And the one lady the one day said, I just don't want to kill him by the end of the, the eight weeks. My 
First thing I always say to people when I do marriage counseling is, this is a picture. Your marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. And God says he hates divorce, and God will never leave you or forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. And when marriages fight to stay together, there's something beautiful, this message that gets confirmed to the world to say, this is the way it is with Christ in the church. He will not leave us. And so even Christ in the church is a marriage. The husband in this uh, book is a shepherd king. And the closest we can get to that in a human form is David because he was a shepherd boy and he grew up to become a king. But he was, wasn't a shepherd king at the same time. He was a shepherd and then he was a king. I don't think Solomon ever got near a sheep. Solomon was uh, enjoyed one of the golden ages of the kingdom reign. He was handed it on a platter by his father. And there was peace in his time. And he was able to do many wonderful things in terms of uh, building the temple and making it beautiful. And people came from all over the, the world to look at um, the successful nation of, of Israel. He was a king. But Jesus is a shepherd king. He is the good shepherd, and he is the king of kings all at the same time. He never stops being a shepherd to you, and he's also your king. And the husband in this story is a shepherd and a king. How can the song of songs, which means the greatest song, that's what song of songs means, the greatest song, how can the greatest song not be about Jesus? Jesus is the greatest story ever told. The greatest character. And so he is also the greatest song that we can sing. On the road to Emmaus, he interpreted all of Scripture. It says in Luke 24, verse 27, all the Scriptures concerning himself. He starts with Moses, and that just means the first five books because that's what Moses wrote. And then it says prophets, and that's just encompassing the rest of the Old Testament Scripture, including Song of Songs, Moses and the prophets, he told these disciples everything about himself from all these books, including the Song of Songs. No section of Scripture should be relegated to a subsection of the church. Those who say this is just a marriage and it's useful for marriages, well, um, it wouldn't have been useful to Jesus or Paul who were both single. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. When we take a book of the Bible and we say this is for some of you and not for others, I think we're on dangerous ground. The Song of Songs is for all of you. Whatever stage of life you find yourself in. And the other interesting thing is the instinct of the saints. This has been the favorite book of some of the greatest saints. Charles Spurgeon, Robert Murray McShane, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Madame Guyon. Their instinct was that Jesus was here in this book and it was their favorite book. So this morning... We're looking at this third poem, and we are trying to see what it has to say about God's divine love for us. I'm going to start. 
in chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh, against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage, from the wood of Lebanon, he made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love. By the daughters of Jerusalem, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon, with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. I always wondered how that was a compliment. <laughs> Leaping down the slopes of Gilead, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate, Behind your veil, your neck is like the tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinai and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchid of pomegranates, with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my, my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. The first thing we see happening in the text this morning is the wedding procession. 
in verse 6011. And earlier I said that this is a collection of poems and they are newlyweds. And so you might be asking, well, if they're newlyweds already, but the wedding procession's in, in the third poem, well, what's going on? Were they not married in the first two poems? And there's two comments I want to make about uh, the timing of this procession. The first one is we must not assume that the poems are in chronological order. The Bible itself is a collection of books, 66 books put together, collected, and organized in a certain way, but it's not chronological. And so it would be a mistake to assume that just because poem three is the third poem, the first two poems come before it. It's quite possible, and I would say even likely, that the poems are not in a chronological order. And so this may have happened first, and poem one and two may have happened afterwards. Um, the second thing I want to draw your attention to is you're reading this book with, and we're thinking about weddings, and we're, we've got our Western viewpoint on most of us. There are some other cultures present that will have their own way that marriages work, um, and I want to remind you that it worked differently in the Middle East. So the way we get married as Westerners, I'll speak from the Western culture, is we typically date um, and uh, eventually formalize that and become boyfriend and girlfriend, and eventually it becomes a little bit more serious and we start we, an engagement. We can still get out of engagements pretty easily. Uh, we just say, I'm done, I'm not engaged anymore. It didn't work like that for them. And... Um, then we have our big wedding day, and if you've been following scriptural principle, and I want to speak to our culture here, that's when you should move in together, after you get married on your wedding day. Unfortunately, we grew up in a culture where it tells us we can move in and get to know each other whenever we should, but that's not what God presents in His Word. Anita and I actually got married for that reason, that I thought I was going to get a job in Cape Town, Cape Town was super expensive, and on the flight back from a church, I was visiting that church uh, for an interview to be the youth pastor. We thought we, we had it in the bag, and uh, on the flight, I said to her, well, you know, if they call me, I'm going there in January, you're coming with, right? So she said, yes. We said, well, Cape Town, we can't afford to live in two separate places. That gives us one option. We get married before we go to Cape Town, which is what we did. Cape Town never happened, so God used that to help us get married. But my point being is we refused to bow to culture that said we could live together first. We didn't want to, we didn't see it that way in scripture and we wanted to be obedient to God. And so that's when you would move in. But let me unpack a little bit of how different it is for the Middle East. In the Middle East, you don't know the person at all. You don't have this dating period. Your family is very much involved in this process right from the start of finding someone for you. And eventually you get to something called a betrothal, which is far more official than our engagement. You had to get uh, divorced if you were, before you even got to the wedding day. If you wanted to break the betrothal, you needed a divorce. So officially, legally, you're essentially what we would consider to be married. Now, that's a whole different ballgame for someone considering, are we going to get to know each other and live together? I spoke to someone after the service. One of the cultures over here functions a bit like that. And in the West, we'd look on them and go, you're not married yet. You haven't had the big day. 
I don't think you should be living together. And this person was explaining to me, well, in our culture, our community, Christ the Christians and Monks would look at this differently because we already almost officially there. To break this is difficult. Now, in the Middle East, they still wouldn't be hanging out together too much, even during the betrothal. And then you would get to your big day, the wedding procession that we see over here, and it was full of pomp, and just as it is here, wonderful, special occasion. And sometimes you still wouldn't move in with each other because you were still getting to know each other slowly. The bride might still go home to her parents and slowly get used to her husband before moving in together. Isn't it interesting how differently these things can work in different cultures? So in this third poem, we have arrived at the big day. And there's some mystery around who is being greeted in this procession. I read from the ESV and it said, what is that coming up from the wilderness? And some of you probably read in your versions, if you're reading uh, another version this morning, it might have said, who is this coming up from the wilderness? And this is just a little language nerd fact for you, and I like it because I studied Arabic, so this is where I learned that. Um, in Arabic, and also here in Hebrew, certain words that seem to be neutral to us in English actually den uh, denote gender. So in Arabic, if I speak about a table, I use the feminine form of table. You can't speak about table in the masculine. Table, for some reason, is a female. I don't know why, it just is. And so even here, these, the reason why the translations are doing this a bit differently is these are feminine words being used here. The what or who is a female. And so that makes it interesting because now the focus of what is coming up or who is coming up out of the wilderness is on the lady and not on Solomon. She is the one coming up out of the wilderness a place of danger and warfare. Ishmael grows up in the wilderness and it says he became skilled with a bow. He had to, to survive. And she's perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. She looks amazing and smells even better. She sits on Solomon's couch, surrounded by a double portion of protection. When David traveled on his seat, he would have 30 men around him protecting him. That was the royal number, 30. She has 60 surrounding her, a double portion of mighty men, experts in war, and have protected her against various terrors as she has traveled. And she sits in splendor, built with love. God's people come out of the wilderness in the Old Testament to be entering into the promised land. The church walks through a wilderness until she reaches the promised land of heaven, until she reaches the marriage supper of the Lamb. She will face difficult times. Despite the hardships of the wilderness, she is scented with fruit, the fruits of the Spirit, which have been born out of times of hardship. Isn't that interesting? We actually somehow go through these tough times and the other side of that brings a greater fragrance. Sometimes something has to be broken before the fragrance is released. And we wonder why God lets us go through these tough times. We spoke about it a bit earlier, but actually your 
what can happen coming out of that can be this wonderful response and love to the Lord. And you end up smelling of the fruits of the Spirit. The hard times cause us to rely on our shepherd king. We tend to rely on ourselves. We tend to be independent. But it's these tough times where we are weak, where we can't stand anymore on our own strength. We finally fall at his feet. And we trust him. As patience, faith, kindness, joy, peace, and love are matured in us through sanctification, as we walk through the fires of this life, so we produce a sweet-smelling fragrance that pleases him. And as the lady in the text has a double portion of protection to protect her against the terrors, so the church has been protected by the Lord throughout her generations. Think about everything she has been through. From the very beginning, the persecution, the intense battle to stop her from moving forward. We stand here today, 2,000 years later, in the southern tip of Africa as testimony to the power of the gospel and God's protection over his church. And yes, she faces many dangers today. Many dangers today. Many challenges that must be overcome. But our encouragement in the Lord is that he will protect her to the very end. She travels in splendor in a carriage, his carriage. It's Solomon's carriage. It's his chair she sits on. Jesus has done the work of salvation for us on the cross. He builds the carriage that carries us into eternity. And this carriage is pictured with pictures of love. His love on display for us through the saving work of the cross. And when the focus finally shifts to Solomon, it says that he is crowned. And interestingly, this isn't his kingly crown. He already is a king. He has a king's crown already. But on the wedding day, he will get a, a crown for his marriage. An extra crown. And so his mother gives him his wedding crown. And I want to say to you, um, the bride, you cannot ride in this carriage of salvation unless you've made him the king of your life. When I see some people say they believe, but God's voice almost seems meaningless to them or non-existent to them, I wonder because a king has authority. What does it mean when you give Jesus the crown of your life? It means that you make him the highest authority in your life. That means his voice matters. And if you don't hear it, you need to uh, be on your knees asking him to speak to you so that you can follow him in his ways. Otherwise, he's not your king. You're the king. If you're just following your own thoughts, your own ways, your own choices, you are the king. But those that ride in this carriage crown him. And he is crowned with many crowns. And we lay our crowns at his feet. He is the king of our lives. I want to speak about authority in a human way for a second for you. I'm the head of the household. I have a son who's seven. I've observed, and my, I've got a 
fairly strong-willed wife. Those of you who know Anita know she, she can hold her own. And I am fascinated to see the way he listens to me and the way he listens to her. So when we do homework with him every day, Anita does homework with him twice a week, I do homework with him the other two times a week. Anita tells me a story the other day. He's intelligent, he's very good at reading already, grade one, and, um, but with her, when she says, okay, read the book, he goes, oh, no, 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 like he fumbles his way through it on purpose. So then she'll say to him, Sebastian, read it slowly and clearly, I want to hear it. And he's like, mom, it's so easy for me. So he gives her a hard time, there's pushback. And then when he reads it slowly and carefully, he reads it like this, in the, the you know, he's like really like showing her how bored he is. And she tells me the story, and I feel like she's speaking about a different kid. Do you know that I read with him as much as she does every day, the same book? The same book for homework? I've never once had him, when I say, Seb, read that book, he reads it. He doesn't push Dad. He doesn't give Dad a hard time. Dad gave an instruction, and he followed. Some of you are frowning, going, enjoy that while it lasts. <laughs> and you're right. It is going to be tested, but my point is this. We recognize, even from a young age, authority. And we tend to listen to it more when we recognize it, when we respect it. And I want to ask you again, and I'm just a man in a house with three people, and my seven-year-old son listens to me. Well done. Where are you at with listening to God? If you hear his voice, is that an option for you? If he says something to you you don't like, is that your choice now, what you will do? Or is he the highest authority in your life, which means what he says goes, which means he can even say, the thing I will fear and hate the most, but because he is my king, I will do it. I spoke to a man this week. He said, Mark, God told me to go to Duncan Village. Plant a church in Duncan Village. Live, serve, and minister in Duncan Village. I've seen terrible things happen. My first week there, um, people were, uh, I, don't, I might be getting some of the facts wrong, but while he was there, people were massacred. And you're living in this fear, and God, have we done the right thing? But the Lord had spoken to him, and God's his king, and so they stay. So I ask you, do you live your life with Jesus as king? Is he the highest authority of your life? What he says goes. Have you done that? As we move into this next section, Solomon now speaks to her. And I've been privileged to do two weddings this year. I warned both times the gents. They were young, strapping, strong men. And I said to them, when you see her, you're going to cry. Neither one of them believed me. And there they were, on the wedding day. This beautiful woman comes in, and they turned into puddles. Puddles. The bride is always the most beautiful one in the room, and it's not just the dress or the hair or the makeup. It's the beauty that radiates from within. This inner happiness at this long-awaited moment Something emanates from within and it makes them stunningly beautiful to all, but especially to those who love them. 
And when Solomon sees her, he gives a head-to-toe description of her beauty. He is smitten. And there's something magical about this moment where the husband beholds the bride as she comes down the aisle. Is it possible that every time we witness that, we are getting a foretaste of the real wedding? There is only one bride, the church, and one husband, Christ, and one marriage, and every other marriage is merely a reflection of that, and every wedding day is a preview of the one that matters the most. What will he say when he sees us? When we walk towards him in spotless righteousness, flawless beauty, as it says here in verse 7. I want to read Solomon uh, chapter 4, verse 7 to you. It says, You are all together beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Sin finally forever gone, and we stand before our beloved flawless. But what of now? Do you know that he already sees you like that, even now? And that's why we struggle with this book and we struggle with this beautiful thought that God would look at us like that and see us like that. Now, when he sees us, he sees the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ already. It's the Gideon effect. When God sees Gideon lying in the wine press, hiding away because he's so afraid, and he says to him, you mighty warrior, and Gideon goes, but I'm the weakest of the weakest of the weakest. You got the wrong guy. And God isn't speaking to Gideon as he is right there and then lying in the wine press all afraid. He's speaking to Gideon as what he knows Gideon will be and Gideon is. He becomes that. The mighty warrior who saves Israel. And he'll look at us. And remember, he knows the end. And Romans, we've said it a few times, Romans 8 gives us this wonderful procedural thing that happens. Those he uh, predestines, he calls. He justified and he glorified. Glorified is the final part where we stand flawless. It, you're as good as there because of the work of what Christ has done on the cross. And so when he looks at you, he sees you like that, even now. He sees clear, beautiful eyes. Joey did a good job. I'm not going to uh, go over that too much. But there's a twinkle in our eye. And it's not so with the world. Their eyes are weak. They stumble around. They can't see clearly. Our eyes show zeal for Him. He sees our neck, which He likens to military might. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, shields all of them shields of warriors. He sees in us this ability to overcome sin. We are jeweled with the fruits of the Spirit. It is beautiful to Him. The world cannot overcome sin. They cannot do it. And even if they can course correct for a little time, it's like uh, just for a little bit and then straight back to uh, pointing north, zero. They land up uh, defeated Slaves to sin. 
But the believer can overcome sin. They are strong with military might. And then we see this display of the fruits of the Spirit. And what of the breasts? Some of you have been interested to see where I go with this. Here's something I want to throw back at you. One of the commentators says that uh, Song of Solomon is like an inkblot. What you see says more about what's going on in your own heart than what's written on the page. And an overly sexualized society reads breasts and has an overly sexualized response to it. I don't think this depiction of breasts needs to be overly sexualized. Breasts represent warmth, tenderness, provision. As we grow in Christ, we are warmer with others, more tender with others, and we are able to pass on spiritual food to others. This is beautiful to Him. Verse 8, I'm going to spend a bit of time on because I felt here this is something God is saying. Up until now, Solomon's just giving this um, description of what he sees, which is wonderful to consider that uh, Jesus might see some of these things in us. But the first time he says something which is to be followed, this is the voice I spoke about earlier. You say he's your king, listen to this voice and then obey it. It says this in verse 8, come with me. Church, you might be listening to the admiration of the husband and thinking, I don't see much of this in me. Or not as much as I would like to. I'm not always focused on Jesus. I stumble my way through life often. Sin overpowers me many times. I'm often not gentle or loving with others. I don't have much to give to others spiritually. And if that's you this morning, I have three things to say to you. The first is welcome to the club. I have all of those weaknesses in me. Confession time. I saw John Besson do a similar confession once, um, emboldened, having chatted to him the other day. I'm driving, and some of you might have seen me, so if you did see me, ha, I'm getting ahead of the game. I dropped my son off at occupational therapy, and then I've come to uh, church to, this is the workaholic, hey? My son's at occupational therapy for 45 minutes. And Mark still will drive from Vincent to Sterling to get in 15 minutes of work and then head back. Obviously, now I'm driving the speed limit. That wasn't the confession. Okay? I am driving the speed limit. I tend to get in my own mind while I'm driving a bit, and sometimes I even drive a bit slow. So I'm coming down Old Trans Sky Road very slowly, not fast. And I want to turn left into Kennington and that interesting uh, robot that's always too far past and people struggle to know what to do with the long yellow section in between. This guy comes down and he's there before me and I am so comfortable with him turning in front of me and going. In fact, I, I go slower so that he can do it. But he does something I've never seen done before. He stops on the yellow area. He's already committed to the turn, stops in the yellow area, Blocks me, doesn't move forward, and then stares me down. So, I am still in a kind mode, and I'm driving fairly slowly, and I 
put my hand up and say, you may go. And his wife scowls at me. And at this point, something rises up in me which is not the Holy Spirit. And now, as he goes, I decide I'm going. And I'm behind him, and now he's going intentionally 10 kilometers an hour down Kennington. And I turn into the oncoming traffic part to go past him because I'm, now I'm not going to wait for this game that we're playing. And he blocks me. And so now I'm back behind. And now I'm getting all into my selfish pride. And I start, uh, he's looking at me in the mirror, and I start saying, my right of way, me, 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 I'm meant to be first. My daughter's in the back. His wife, his daughter are looking at me. I mean, the popcorn's out. This is a show now. They're, we're going so slowly down Kennington. There's a line of cars watching me behave badly. I'll remind you, where am I heading towards? Church. And this car turns into the residential area in Kennington Road, and now I'm free to go, and I'm too embarrassed to come to church. So I drive past church and wait until all of the witnesses have driven off in their various directions. And then I turn around and come back to church. I understand feeling sinful. I understand struggling with insecurities. And so this morning I want to say to you, I get it. You are part of a club. That's the first thing I want to say to you. Welcome to the club. The second thing I want to say to you, this might surprise you, but I don't think you're as aware of the fruit in you that there is. So I think when you say, I don't really look for Jesus or have zeal for him, I think it's there more than you think it is. I think you just want it to be there more. And that's a sign of the Spirit at work in your life. You're here today because you want more of Jesus. You want to learn how to follow Him. You might feel guilty about the sin in your life, but there's something in your heart that's saying, I'm coming after you. I want to follow you. He loves that. There's more fruit that we've read about here. The clear eyes, they are there more often than you think they are. Yes, we get muddled. Yes, we get confused. Yes, we drop the ball. But I want to say to you, the work of the Spirit is faithful in your life. And there's more fruit there than you'll give credit for. Every time you repent, you have turned your eyes upon Him. Weak eyes can't do those things. It's the eye of the follower of Christ. It is clear there's a twinkle there. The last thing I want to say to you is, if you want to grow in these traits, zeal, strength, warmth, gentleness, spiritual food for others, the answer is verse 8. Come with me. Jesus says, come with me. This is the most important thing I can say to you this morning. If you're writing something down, write this down and make it bold and circle it. The heart of the Christian faith is spending time with Jesus. That's it. In a nutshell. It's not coming to church religiously. It's not finishing reading all of this and doing all of these amazing works. It's spending time with Jesus. He says, come with me. Be with me. And I want to ask you this, church. When was the last time you were just with Him? When did you last enjoy time with Him? No judgment. No program. No performance. Because sometimes even when I come to Him, it turns into a performance. I've got to pray about this and this and this and this. And this. I, 
Put it all aside and be with Him. Let it be an open space that He can speak into to your life. When was the last time you just sat with Him? No rules. And the beautiful thing here is we can all do this differently. We've all got a personal relationship with Christ. One of you might say, uh, I feel Him most when I'm at the beach. Another one might say in the, in the um, forest. Another one experiences Him talking to them while they walk. Another one needs to sit. Another one's listening to music and they hear His voice. Another one sits quietly and they hear His voice. It doesn't, there are no rules. You have a personal relationship with Jesus, but when was the last time you came away with Him? And we need to do this often. No rules, but often. And when last were you just with Him? I'm going to give you one more example. I'm going to need to speed up. Story time always takes too much of the sermon. I went to work a couple of Tuesdays back, sat down at my desk, and I wrote down all of my daily activities. That's my way. It's a very sad life, but that's what I like. And while I was doing it, the Lord whispered to me, and He said, write down, be with me. And I said, Lord, I have so many meetings. He said, come away with me. Confession time. I am bad at listening to God when He says, stop working. And be with me. That day, one of my meetings is with a counselor. Get this. I'm in counseling, ironically, because I overwork and I'm in an unhealthy state. So the Lord says, be with me. I go, no, Lord, I'm too busy. Too busy today to be with you. I'm going to counseling to talk about how busy I am and how unhealthy that is for me. And God says, be with me. No, Lord. But I take my Bible to the counselor to give myself the option of maybe being obedient to the Lord. After the counseling, I'm maybe going to ride down to the beach and spend time with him. But I also know as I'm driving to the counselor, I'm not going to do that. Because that's not how I function. Because already as I'm driving to the counselor, I'm feeling guilty about not being at work to work on my mental health. I'm wondering if the people at work are noticing I'm not at work. And I know that when the time comes and I've got to make that choice to drive down to the beach and be with Jesus because God said, be with me, I am going to listen to the voice that says they are expecting you back at work there and you've already spent too much time out. This is the battle I face. Martha in me is strangling Mary. She wins. She always wins. Whose voice are you listening to? I tell my counselor, God told me to go and be with him today, but I don't think I'm going to do it. And she begs me. She says, this is the reason you're sitting here. You're sitting here because you don't listen to his voice, because you overwork. You think he's impressed with it. You think other people are impressed with it. You've got no time to be obedient to what he's saying to you. And I say to her, even then, you're right. I still know when I climb into that car and you're not here, that's going to be my battle. And I climb back into the car. And I look at my Bible sitting on my chair. And I turn on the engine. And I put my arms and my hands on the steering wheel. And I let out a big sigh because this is a huge fight. Just to be obedient to go and be with him. And I drive down to the beach. 
and it's 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And I'm still dealing with the guilt and the, what's the staff member's going to think? Already been out. It's a work day. Been out for an hour. Now I'm, what if one of them drives and sees me at the beach, chilling with Jesus? As I drive down to Nahoon Point, I see what looks like a hundred surfers in the bay. Tuesday morning, 11 o'clock. I know surfers like work loose hours, but that was, I thought, geez, this is something special going on here today. The closer I get, I realize they're not surfers. The bay is full of dolphins. Now, I've seen, we've seen pods, and I'm, I'm sure you've all seen it, but I have never seen that many just going berserk right in front of my eyes. And I felt a kiss from heaven. Song of Songs chapter 1 says, He kisses me with the, the kisses of his mouth. I felt a kiss from heaven saying, You've chosen well. When was the last time you just, and there I am. Look, I'm not praying. I'm just looking at the dolphins and being obedient to Jesus. He said, be with me, and I'm being with him. When was the last time you did that? Whose voice will you listen to when Jesus says, come and be with me? He's saying it to you. I will read it again, verse 8. This is what he's saying to you. Come with me. The final thing I'm going to say to you this morning, the final thought I'm going to have to race is the garden. 12 to 5 verse 1. Every Christian is a garden. We were once a desert, but God has made us new. He's planted new plants in us that were never there before. We are also a spring. There is living water inside of us. Don't you find it interesting, the description of living water in the text? That is the Holy Spirit. I don't know what kind of marriage this was between Solomon and this woman where living water was there, but I get that living water is present in my marriage with Jesus. It's His Spirit inside of me. New life springs forth, and Jesus finds it beautiful. We once loved sin, but now we love God more. That's His work. The Spirit does that. This garden is locked. That means it's secure. But he has access to it. But I want to say this to you. This is the strongest part here. It's, he doesn't come in without an invitation. This garden is locked. He has access to it. But he doesn't come in without an invitation. When we open our hearts to him, he comes, and then the fruit comes forth. Last week, I spoke about a special moment in worship out at Buffalo Park. I was deliberately uh, leaving out some details because um, as I'm gonna, I feel led in the Lord to share them with you today. But I really don't want you to miss the heart of the story. I don't want you to mishear it. What happened that day when the Lord moved? We'd been worshiping for some time, and I usually worship with my eyes closed. Every now and again, I opened my eyes, and someone was lying on the floor. I am unchurched. I've never seen someone fall over at any meeting. I thought they were tired. We had been there a long time. I thought nothing of the fact that they are lying on the floor. I'm sharing that with you because I want you to see this wasn't me looking at something happening to someone else and going, oh, I'd really like to do that. I had no clue what was going on. No clue. 
I am so naive standing there. And the youth pastor comes up and he puts his hand on my shoulder, Robbie Hammond, and he says, and he starts praying and he just says one word. He says, receive, receive, receive. And he keeps going. And I'll let you know what's going on in my head. Okay? Are you done? How long have we been going here? I don't know what's going on. What am I meant to receive? He just kept going. It might have been five minutes, but I th- maybe it was a minute. But, you know, these things feel longer when you've got someone standing next to you saying the same thing over and over and over and over, and you don't know what they want. And so at some point, while he's praying, I say to the Lord, I start participating. The garden's locked. And I say, Lord, if there's something you want to give me, I want to be open to it. And you can believe this next part or not. I'm just telling it as a testimony. I'm telling you what happened to me. I felt a rush hit me in my chest, physically. And when that happened, I got scared. Because I never in my wildest dreams thought that simply by saying, God, if there's something you want to give me, I'll receive it, that there would be an instantaneous physical response to that. I was not expecting it at all. And so when it came, it shocked me, and I pushed it away. The garden is locked. And it comes with invitation. And as soon as this feeling had come, and I've now pushed it away and recovered, I feel regret. Because I'd said, Lord, you can, and then he did, and then I pushed him away. I feel no right to pray my next prayer, but I do it anyway. And I say, Lord, I'm sorry. I wasn't expecting that. But if you want to come and do something like that again, you can come. And it came immediately. And this time I said, okay, I'm not stopping it. I don't know what this is. I've never been through anything like this before but I'm not stopping it. And God's Spirit washed over me. And I felt love. I felt that I was His. I'm nervous to share the story with you because some of you might be going, are you saying that you know, when we have worship services we should all be falling over? No. I, that gets abused. I find that quite uncomfortable. But what I am saying is that are we open to God to come? When she says here in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. She's speaking for the first time. Blow upon my garden. Are you open to the Spirit and saying to Him, Lord, come and fill me. You're a locked garden. It won't happen unless you're open. Are you willing that he might come? And you know what we're after? I want to tell you what I'm after. This is what happened to me. This story is meaningless if it was just about a little boy who falls over and lies on the ground for a little bit. That is a pointless story. But when that boy gets up and two weeks later gets called into missions and goes on the mission field for four years and then two years later to Oman and preaches his first sermon 
a few months later. And suddenly, this is what we're interested in. It's the fragrances of the Spirit in your life, and it's the fruit that comes forth. I don't care at all about the thing that happened in the meeting. I care that you are open to the Spirit's work in your life, and that He flows through you, and that you are used for His glory, and He can enjoy you. That's what happens at the end of this text. Jesus comes in and enjoys this fruit coming forth. And some of you might say, Mark, I've never had a worship experience like you've just described, but I do feel that the Holy Spirit moves powerfully within my life, and I've seen Him use me. And I would say, wonderful, that's what we want. That's what we're after. These things work differently for everyone. But this morning, I feel the Lord saying to you, come and be with me. And the second thing is, when you're there, are you going to be open and say, Holy Spirit, you come and have your way in my life. Fill me. Blow on this garden. Let this garden spring forth with fragrance and fruit that will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Lord, as we've considered this text this morning, we're encouraged, Lord, by this reminder that the end is secure. As you have protected your church throughout the centuries, so you will carry her home to be with you. We're grateful, Lord, for the work of the Spirit in our lives, that you are making us beautiful to him. We are grateful, Lord, for these twinkling eyes that long for you. We're grateful, Lord, for the strengthening um, within us that helps us overcome sin. Lord, we are grateful for all of the fruits of the Spirit that comes from your Spirit's work within us. Lord, we're not good at hearing your voice. We're not good at obeying it. And I pray, Lord, that as people sit here and their hearts are open to you and your spirit is here even now at work, may they hear your voice speaking to them saying, come and be with me. I pray that we would overcome every other voice. The voice that says we should be busy, the voice that... Um, keeps us from being obedient to you, Lord. I pray that we would discern those voices and know that they're not you and that you would give us grace and wisdom to obey you, Lord. That when we come and spend time with you, it wouldn't be about performance, it wouldn't be about fulfilling anything, Lord. It would be simply about loving and enjoying your presence at work in our lives. And I pray for these gardens, Lord, that are sitting here, you see them. You are the gardener. You love to walk amongst your garden, Lord. I pray, Lord, that there would be an openness. As much as we can lock this thing and we are in control of it, I pray that there would be an openness to your spirit. That like this lady can say, Awake, O north wind. Awake, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. I pray that the Spirit would move powerfully in our lives. That we would invite it. That we would invite Him 
And Lord, that you would bring forth fragrance and fruit that would be a blessing to you that you could enjoy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the end of the service. There is coffee, and uh, encourage you to go and enjoy that under the tent, and we will see you again next week.